what is the first characteristic you think of when I ask you to think about God? Because this moment here in Exodus 34 is, I think, what the whole book of Exodus has been waiting for. We've spent an awful lot of time moving through the book of Exodus. And we have seen some amazing images that along the way as God has been describing these pictures of redemption. And now we are coming to a moment where now God is giving a magnificent display of who He is. And if you remember in our beginnings back at the early on back there in Exodus, everything has been about explaining who God is. Explaining who God is to the Egyptians through the plagues. Explaining who God is to Israel. Explaining who God is even to Moses. I am who I am. And now here we are at this grand finale as we have come to the pinnacle of this moment. As now we are going to get this great display of who God really is. uh, That Israel and the nations and all the world would know who this God is. Uh, Exodus 34 is arguably a terrible chapter break. (laughs) There's, There's nothing that says the scene has shifted whatsoever. If you remember that we have back in Exodus 33, the problem that has been put together after chapter 32, we have the golden calf incident that we know very well, where the people are bowing down and worshiping this golden calf. And Moses has gone up on the mountain to make intercession. And while Moses is up there on the mountain, God has told Moses, beginning of chapter 33, the tabernacle project has been ended. We're not going to have that. Uh, The the people are too stubborn. They are stiff-necked. I cannot go with these people because if I do, my anger is going to consume them. And so Moses, I will send my angel with the people. And you can go into the promised land and I will drive out the enemies and you'll possess the land, but I am not going with you. And this is described as bad news. God not with His people is the opposite of the good news. It is bad news. And the people then go through repentance and crying out to God about this, about this terrible news. And Moses is making intercession on behalf of, of the people. And if you remember how 33 ends, is that Moses is pleading with God, you must go with us. If you are not going to go with us, then do not send us up. I'm not going, your people are not going, because if you're not with us, then, then we're not your people. And God then says, I will go with you. And Moses wants a confirmation of that and says, show me your glory. We have the tendency to read verses 17 to 23 of Exodus 33 as if that had happened. And that has not happened yet. That God expresses to Moses, okay, I can't show you my face, but I will set you in the cleft of the rock and I will allow a portion of my glory to pass by you. And it's in the midst of that discussion that chapter 34 continues on. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 34, 1, cut for yourself two tablets of stone. Like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up on the come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, 
And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took his hand, in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is an amazing moment now that unfolds here as Moses is told, okay, come back up on the mountain, bring two cut tablets. And God is already envisioning this moment of being able to reestablish this covenant that has been broken. Notice the emphasis that is made by God first and foremost in those first few verses is only Moses can do this. Nobody else. Nobody else come on the mountain. No animals on the mountain. It's like we're back in Exodus 19. Nobody comes near the mountain, but Moses is the only one who is allowed to come up into the presence of God and none else. And as he goes up into the presence of God, you notice the beautiful scene in verse 5. The Lord descends in a cloud, very much like what happened in Exodus 19 again. The Lord descends in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And notice here it is, verse 6, the Lord passed before him. And notice what God says about himself. This is what God says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. I want you to think about, as God now reveals His glory here at this moment, the description that He gives of Himself. Of all the different characteristics that God could express about who He is. And if you would think about all the perhaps the different answers you had, as you thought of when I asked the question, When I say to think of God, what characteristic do you think of first? That this is God's response. Mercy and grace. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving iniquity. Forgiving transgression. And forgiving sin. This is how God reveals Himself to Israel to Moses, and to all humanity. One of the questions that arises in these three chapters, and it's a question that God poses essentially throughout all of human history, 
is how can a holy God dwell with these people? This has been the crisis moment of chapters 32, 33, and 34. This is what it's all about. God is a holy God. And God desires to dwell in the midst of His people. However, there is a problem with the people. The people are defiled and unholy. Even though God gives His laws, what are the people doing? But full of idolatry. Forty days later, after God decrees the Ten Commandments, which one of those early commandments from the very beginning is loving God and turning away from idols. And the very thing they're doing on the, uh, there at the base of the mountain is not loving God and participating in idolatry. And God's response is they are worthy of wrath. And yet here is the problem. God wants to dwell with His people, but the people deserve wrath. What is the solution to this? How can a holy God dwell with His people? The people are down there repentant. And Moses is on the mountain interceding. But the answer is given to us right here. Because God says, here's how God dwells with people. Because I'm merciful and I'm gracious. And I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving iniquity. Forgiving sin. And forgiving transgression. Even showing His love to thousands. This is the character of God on display at this very moment. This is His name. This is who He is. And friends, I hope you will see that in verse 5 and verse 6, that this is saying that this is the glory of the Lord passing before Moses. And what makes God glorious is those words right there. That He is gracious and merciful. That He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and He forgives sin, transgression, and iniquity. This is the character of God. What is important about this revelation of God is it is so easy for us to have a one-dimensional view of God. I believe the general Christian world, if you will, seems to run in a one-dimensional view of God. It seems that most people will run with either one extreme or the other. One side saying that God is only compassionate. All He is is mercy. All He is is grace. He just loves There's no judging in God. He wouldn't ever do something like that. He's full of love and compassion and grace. Ignoring the second half of the description that God gives is that He will by no means clear the guilty. Which then causes people to swing to the other side and go, He is a wrathful God. And He is going to French fry you on the spot. And there is no compassion in God whatsoever. There is no mercy from Him whatsoever. He just whips on people and gets them. And that's not the description of God either. So often people run in a one-dimensional view of who God is. And we need to see that God is showing us something that is easy to miss. That God is able to describe Himself and is able to stipulate the terms of His mercy and His grace on His terms.
He decides how he's going to do this. It's not the terms that we want to come up with. We sit back and go, well, here's how I know God's going to work all that out. And then we pass judgment on, okay, well, this guy's going to get it and this guy's not. And I want you to see how God is being pictured for us here. It is an amazing picture of God. Is that being a merciful God does not mean that there are not consequences for sin. Not in the slightest. He certainly describes that. God will be merciful on the terms that He stipulates, not on the terms that we can imagine or come up with. But by the same token, that should not cause us to look at God and say, He is a wrathful, angry God by which I sit in fear and tremble at any moment when He might blink and do something at me. That's not Him either. For God to say, here is my glory. Here is the expression of who I am. I am a God who is merciful and gracious. This is how God can be with His people. Because that is His character. The essence of His long-suffering. The essence of His patience. It is something that is in the character of God that you absolutely cannot miss if you read any amount of it whatsoever. That God is constantly being merciful and gracious to people who ought not receive that. We study the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament all the time and marvel at the patience of God when it comes to His dealings with Israel. And the patience again in sending prophet after prophet and sending His own Son and raising up apostles to proclaim to the world the mercy and the graciousness of God such that the apostle Peter can write in his letter and say he is long-suffering and not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. This is the disposition of God to the world. In a moment when what is deserved is wrath, God steps back and says, I will be with these people. In fact, that is why in verse 8 you'll notice Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. What is the immediate response? Worship. This is who he is. And we bow the knee before God because of this character, because it is so glorious. Such that he says in verse 9, he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Did you catch what Moses did? What he says is absolutely fantastic. He bows before God in worship. And he begins by saying, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Do you know what he just asked? you know what he's getting at? 
Here he's describing the people. Would it make sense to say in verse 9, Oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Wait, that's the problem. (laughs) That's the whole problem that was put out there. Chapter 33, God said, I can't go in the midst of you because you are a stiff-necked people. Moses turns around and goes, You have to go in the midst of us because it is a stiff-necked people. You scratch your head and go, What are you doing? Moses, that's, don't argue that point. That's not a good point. But Moses is arguing a beautiful point. We need the tabernacle. Because the people are a stiff-necked people, all the more we need you in our midst. All the more we need the tabernacle to be there in the very center because the tabernacle project is where atonement will be found and where the priesthood will be. Moses is saying that's exactly our problem and we need that tabernacle. We need that forgiveness. We need that place of atonement. We need that Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Everything, God, that you have described to me on the mountain back there in chapters 28 to 32, 31, we need all of that. Because we are a stiff-necked people, we need that. It is a beautiful point that Moses makes before God. That's why we need God in our midst. Friends, this is the picture of redemption right here. This is the beautiful picture of redemption. The people break the covenant. Intercession is made. God renews the covenant, causing people to worship Him and desire to be with Him because He is gracious and merciful and full of steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. That's what the whole redemption plan is about. As we break the laws of God... And God is merciful because there's an intercessor so that He continues to be with us. In fact, you see the beauty of that in verse 10. He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as I have not been such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you shall see the work whom you whom you are let me get that again and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the lord for it is an awesome thing that i will do there is no way to understate or overstate excuse me verse 10 Moses says, if I found favor in your sight, please let the Lord go in the midst of us because we are a stiff-necked people. And take us for your inheritance and pardon our sin and iniquity. And I want us to see that you know what God should do right here? What God should do is declare Israel to be in breach of the covenant. The covenant is broken. Moses has displayed that in the shattering of those tablets. The covenant is broken. And God has every right to walk away. 
You have been found in breach of the covenant. There is no obligation by which God has to stand here on His end and go, okay, well, I will be your God and you will be my people. He has no need to do that. I put that before you and you rejected it. But what God says in verse 10 is staggering because what He is saying is, I am going to make that covenant with them. We are going to put the pieces that have just been blown to bits all back together again. I'm going to be with you. We are going to have a tabernacle. I will be in your midst. Forgiveness is going to come. Everything that Moses requests, even though they are stiff-necked people, there will be the tabernacle and I will pardon iniquity and pardon sin and I will take these people as my inheritance. I'm going to do it. I'm making that covenant. And friends, I believe this is essentially the full realization of what God said verbally who He is. God just said, here's my character, here's my glory. I am merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, pardoning transgression and iniquity and sin. And He just did that right now. So that he can say in verse 10, I will make a covenant with the people. He is doing exactly what his character is. What he said he is, he's now doing. He is this very thing. And that is what makes that verse so beautiful. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of God. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And how true is that? What God would do with these people is absolutely staggering. And what He is calling them to is now a covenant relationship. What I would like for you to observe is from verse 11 to verse 28, what God does now is describe various aspects of the covenant. He's going to describe for them certain aspects. He doesn't restate all the Ten Commandments. He doesn't restate chapters 25 to 31. He doesn't go through all those things again. What God does is He's going to highlight certain aspects of this covenant. And they are certain aspects that show the identity of who these people are to be. The covenant is supposed to shape the identity of these worshipers. Let's notice some of them. For example, the first thing he says in verses 11 and 12 is what I want you to do after you drive out all these people is do not make any foreign treaties with them. Do not make any covenants with those foreign people. And he tells them the the reason why they're going to be a snare to you, verse 12. If they stay in the land, they're going to cause your heart to turn away from God. And so don't make covenants with them. Don't make treaties with them. And this is part of the shape of being these people of God who are distinct and being in a covenant relationship with God is that they would separate themselves from the world and that they belong solely to God. The next few verses continue the same idea. Verses 13 to 17. Tear down all the idols. No idolatrous practices. Those will turn your heart away from God too. I don't want you to participate in idolatry. You belong to me. And so do not do those things. 
verses 18 through 26, he describes various acts of worship. He'll tell them to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He'll tell them to remember the redemption that God had accomplished for them. And that's what's part of all those feasts were anyway. All those feasts were remembering how you were slaves in Egypt and God had brought you out by a mighty hand. He tells them to keep the Sabbath, to commemorate the Feast of Weeks. Do all these things. Bring in the first fruits. Why? Why is God telling them these things? And why these and not don't murder, don't steal? You know, you'd say, put the big laws back out there, right? Why these? Because these are a picture of the identity of the people that will set them apart before God. This covenant that they are coming into now with God and in doing these things makes them distinct such that they keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they keep Sabbaths, they remember the redemption that God had accomplished, they keep the Feast of Weeks, they bring in the first fruits. All these things were things that made them distinct, that marked them as God's people. And the point is not that God is saying, well, let's just see what kind of rules there are. But that this is shaping who you are, that you understand your identity. Make sure you keep your Sabbath so that you remember who you are. Keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Keep that because that's part of the Passover. Remember who you are. Keep the Feast of Weeks. Remember your redemption. Bring in the first fruits. Remember that God is your primary. All of that is about shaping their identity in the new covenant. I think what's important for us to recognize that that is the whole idea about some of the things that we do in this new covenant. Interesting, they had a new, renewed covenant. And God does the same thing for us in our new covenant. Have you noticed that there are some, what we would perhaps by logic say, some strange distinctions, some distinctive acts that we do that are unusual to the rest of the world? And it's because those distinctive acts are to set us apart and remind us of who we are. They shape our identity like baptism. Don't you know that you are putting to death the old self and coming up out of the waters to walk in newness of life, raised with Christ? There's a picture that's there. It's not just simply, let's come up with some weird things that we can get some people to do and see if they will do it. But it shapes your identity. It is a reminder of who you are. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. What is happening there? Paul says we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're remembering that what Christ did is who we are. Why we are able to be in covenant with God is because of Christ. And we remember that. We are given these kinds of distinctives so that we would appreciate and remember our identity. That's why these things are here just as He gave it to them. What about the strange thing about worshiping on the first day of the week? Why not any of the other days? What's it matter? Because it's shaping identity. It's shaping who you are. Your Lord rose on the first day of the week and you belong to Him. These things were given with purpose. 
The whole idea is that we would see these things as a way to define who we are. Not just simply make sure you get two, three, or five acts of worship or whatever it is, and you're a-okay. No. It's defining you. It's shaping identity. It's saying, I belong to the Lord. And that's why as this covenant is being renewed here with Moses and the people, God zeroes in on these particulars. Is remember who you are. Know what God has done for you. Recognize the beauty of the covenant that you now have and what that means for you in this distinct identity that you have with God. I want us to see why all these things are very important to God. I skipped over a line that I want to now go back to. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Interesting, in the midst of a description of who God is, I am merciful, I am gracious, I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I pardon sin, transgression, iniquity. He then also is turning and saying, I am a jealous God. In fact, he says, my name is jealous. Now, we need to think about that idea for a minute. Because in our terminology, the vast majority of the time when we talk about jealousy, we usually mean it in a negative. It's almost always a negative. There is perhaps one scenario where we are okay with jealousy. When jealousy is right. And that is in a marriage relationship. You are jealous for your spouse and will not share him or her with anyone else. And that is right. That's the way it's supposed to be. That is the message that God is getting across. It's not the negative that we often will associate with jealousy, but the positive of what God is saying. God is jealous for the affection and the commitment and the devotion of His people. He is not a person who sits back and says, well, it's okay that you go to these other idols. Notice it's in the middle of the idolatry section. It's okay if you worship these other gods. It's okay if your heart is split. It's okay if you want to you know, go about worshiping whatever you want to worship. I'm okay with that. How would that work in a marriage if we described it like that? Oh, I'm okay if you go see other people and you're going around to whomever. That's no big deal, you know, because I love you. It's okay. Those don't reconcile. If there's love, then there is devotion and commitment. And that's what God is saying. I am a God of mercy and love and faithfulness. And I want a relationship with you so bad that I don't want to share. I want everything about your heart and about your mind 
and about your life. I don't want you sharing your life with these other things in the world. I want you. I want you to think about what that means in terms of God. Because it really shows how much God cares for us. If you had a spouse that said, hey, you know, I don't really care if she comes, she goes, whatever. If I see her, you know, once every three years, eh, whatever, you know. You say, oh, well, that's really terrible. But can you imagine a God who would say, you know what, you go do whatever you want to do, and whenever you feel up to kind of check it in with me, I'm okay with that. That's not a God who cares. That's not a God who's compassionate. That is not a God who is fully devoted to you. That is not a God who is zealous for your life. A God who desires you and is passionate for you and wants to be with you must be jealous by definition. He must want you and not have you share yourself with anyone else. Think about why God so often describes His relationship with His people as a marriage relationship and describes unfaithfulness in that relationship as adultery. Always. That's the picture. Because God is jealous for us. And God brings that out right here and says, this is how I am toward you. I truly care about you. And it is the expression that is so powerful in the prophets that the prophets again and again display something that is, I think, I think in many ways it's, it's hard to fathom. But God is deeply hurt when we allow ourselves to be pulled away from Him. That's what the prophets are saying. Why does God make Hosea marry a prostitute? But to show the pain of what God is experiencing with unfaithful Israel toward Him. This should stun us about who God is. That He does not sit back and go, I am impervious God and I have no emotions and I really don't care what you do. Just be sure to worship me on Sunday and all will be well. We have a God who is so passionate about a relationship with us that it is hurt to Him. To use imagery like adultery and unfaithfulness and treachery to try to picture where God is coming from in this relationship when we turn our backs on Him. And yet in the face of all of that, how can God dwell with unholy people like us because he's merciful and gracious full of steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin an amazing God an amazing display of the glory of God is what he expresses to Moses and to Israel and to the world We've already seen a number of implications to the New Testament so far in this lesson, but as we bring it to a close, I want to draw out just a couple of more. 
The imagery is so critical to what the New Testament message is of what we are experiencing in Christ. We are seeing with Moses this great scene. Moses fasts for 40 days and nights and while he's on the mountain, God gives him the law that he's going to deliver the people, which is a renewing of the covenant, which he calls all people now to obedience. For he is a jealous God and he said, I want you now to obey me. I want you to listen. Notice chapter 34, verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. And it should be of no accident that we recognize the way the gospel set up for us. What we've already seen in Mark's account, it's given in greater detail in Matthew's gospel. Here's Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Successful over Satan, the temptation seen in the wilderness. And then he goes up on the mountain and delivers to the people the law, which renews the covenant and calls all people to obey. What we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is replicating the very scenes that are happening here in Exodus 34. But Israel had broken the covenant, and yet here God comes down. And he goes up on the mountain and says, here's the law. Come back to the covenant. Come back to God. And so in picturing this, what we are seeing something in Jesus that is absolutely stunning and absolutely beautiful, that Jesus is the new Moses who delivers us this new covenant. And that's the way that we can have relationship with God. Just as we see here at this moment with a covenant broken, we have Moses as an intercessor who goes up on the mountain and we have a covenant that is reestablished so that God will be able to be with his people. God agrees to continue with his people even though they are sinful. And so in the same way, Jesus functions in that very same picture, bringing us a new covenant so that we are able to have forgiveness of sins. This is part of that memorial every single week. Every single week we are remembering we have a forgiving God and it is through the death of Christ that it makes it possible for God to be with us. It's all because of Jesus. Second, Jesus came because God's a jealous God. Because God so badly wants a relationship with you, He forfeits His own Son to die for us. That's how much He wants a relationship with us. That's the kind of devotion that He's looking for. Is God has done everything. That's what's so staggering about the good news. God has done all the work. He's made all the sacrifice to make it possible for us to be with Him. And that reflects that jealousy. Because that's how much He earnestly desires to be with us. Because in Jesus you are seeing ultimately the greatest display of the name and the character of God. Remember John 1, we've seen His glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is that glory? Exodus 34 just told us. That God is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? It's a call for us to be devoted to the Lord, to see this covenant that has been initiated through Jesus Christ, and then to live in that covenant identity, showing the world what God has done for us and calling the world to enjoy the same relationship with the Lord 
that we also enjoy. I hope now when you are asked the question, when you think about God, what do you think about? That those two verses come to mind of who God is. And that's how much He desires for you to be with Him. If you're ready to come to Him tonight, won't you turn away from your sins? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can enjoy this glorious relationship with Him. God wants to be with you. God wants a relationship with you. He wants you so earnestly that He doesn't want to share you with anyone else because He wants that kind of deep relationship with you and you alone. Will you give your life completely to Him? Submit your life to the great King Jesus who died for your sins. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?